You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 148 of Life of Podcast. I'm here with my friend Vincent Batista. He's a recent PhD from the University of Michigan, what I like to call my genetics guy. Today we're talking about mainly stuff I find interesting, but probably human evolution, paleoanthids, and human genetics. You might remember Vincent from episode 114. Did I read that wrong? Did I say 114 before? Probably. No, you we're didn't. No, you're good. I didn't? Okay. You're 148. Good, yeah. Connor Probably. and uh, Carlton aren't here today, so we're, we're, we're free-balling it. Yeah, so anyway, episode 148. You might have seen Vinny on episode 114, but you know, here we are on 148 now. So we're going to talk. Vincent, how you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm, I enjoy free-balling. That's Tom Petty's famous song. You're a classic rock guy, aren't you? Big classic rock guy. Okay. You like fishing, you like dogs, and you like classic rock. You know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a man with very simple uh, hobbies, and they are beer, canids, and fly fishing. <laughs> I appreciate the canids and not canids, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like coyotes. We're big coyote guy. You're a big coyote guy? Big coyote guy. You do send me a lot of stuff in reference to your dog looking at coyotes. You want, yeah. you want to dive into that? <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, I have a... A livestock guardian dog rescue named Mac. He nice. was a runt of his litter. He's a 120 pounds when he's lean. He's oh, wow. a brick shit house. Yeah, he uh, he's great. You know, I take him with me when I go fishing and everything. And obviously, New England has a really wild uh, coyote problem right now. The Where's that? In, it's all over New England. It's wild. Oh, New England. Like, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Like they brought in sharpshooters a couple towns over and. It, like, didn't help with the coyote problem. It's like, guys, get some wildlife biologists over here. <laughs> like, talk to them about how, like, you know, the landscape is contributing to this. But, yeah, Mac is a, he's a big fella. You know, these livestock guardian dogs are bred to not really have a prey drive. They, you know, are very gentle with livestock and stuff. And he was, we think he was raised on a chicken farm because we have pictures of him as a puppy on a chicken farm. Okay. But uh, he really loves ducks. He, he's like Tony Soprano. <laughs> or a few neutron <laughs> yeah yeah he just loves ducks and and birds and he you know but he can distinguish between like predatory birds and non-predatory birds so he sees a hawk like a red-tailed hawk he bugs out at it but he sees like a mallard and he's perfectly fine but uh, that's like a, a scent thing or a chemical thing no I, I genuinely think it's like aerial like an animal that's like circling above your head uh. and, you know what i mean these dogs are great because like they you know they can sense all dogs can smell way better than we can hear way better than we can. And so they detect things in the landscape more easily than we do. Like uh, I took him fishing up in the green mountain national forest and he sits next to me when we fish and he's usually off leash or, you know, I have the leash dropped next to me or whatever, but he just booked it up this riverbank and he treated a black bear. <laughs> he like wow. had this, yeah, yeah. He just like did not care. And this is like pretty common. I called him off. He was fine. But like, you know, in here in Massachusetts, the coyotes are to the point where like I take him with me on purpose because they come up to you. They just do not care. They'll just approach you. And they've like bitten people on the beach. Black and, bears? Uh, no, no, coyotes. Coyotes. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine a yeah. black bear? <laughs> I was like, uh, I feel like I'd heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> I should have. Uh, nah, yeah. There, I mean, there's definitely black bears over here, but the coyotes are really what's the... What's a big thing? And there's, you know, if you ever read the book Coyote America, that's a really good book if you're interested in that stuff. I haven't. 
It's by uh, Dan Flores is the name of the author. Basically, the whole thesis is like coyotes are a good model for humans. Okay. It's funny you bring that up too because one of the things I wanted to ask you about when I get into species later is about coyotes. But also you said that they're a big issue in New England. I see my aunt sends me pictures sometimes of coyotes on Long Island all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've seen several pictures on like Long Island Wise Guy on Instagram of like just coyotes like roaming su- suburbs now. And that wasn't usually a thing when I was a kid in the 90s. So yeah. it's like they're populating a lot now. They're all over the place, man. They're everywhere. The only place in Massachusetts where they aren't is like Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. They're everywhere now. But yeah, in Connecticut growing up, you know, you'd see one every once in a while. But like I see one all the time. Like we, one of them killed a buck behind my, my in-law's place last year. One coyote? So it was probably a pack, but it, oh, okay. they took down they took down a uh, a buck that had recently shed its antlers. They took it down like right behind the house, hmm. and it happened first thing in the morning. We heard it, <laughs> and I went and walked my dog back there, and he was going nuts, man. He was freaking out. He found the carcass. He like peed all over it. He disappeared in the woods. Came back with like its heart in his mouth. I'm like Mac, drop that. <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> it was nuts, man. Sounds like something I would do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool, though. One thing I find fascinating is coyotes, for sure. They are Canis uh, is their species. Canis or Canis latrans is their species. Canis is a genus. But dogs are Canis lupus. Familiaris wolves are Canis lupus. You're the guy who always comments on our uh, our Instagram posts, like, "What even is a species, man?" And like you and I, I think vibe pretty well. Yeah. On on this idea, so I had a friend. It might even be from that book. My friend had told me it was from a book she read that coyotes are just natural dogs. Like they're, they're a wolf species that just exists as natural dogs. Whether you want to go with that behaviorally or genetically, I would say they're, they're, they're different. But her point was like they just fulfill a niche that they scavenge, right? And they do little things like that. Yeah. Uh, they're not exactly like apex hunters like wolves are, but they're not dogs entirely. But the, my, my question to you is like, it's all just one species to me that does different specialized niches, isn't it? Or niches. I don't know, like how you would define species in that way. Here's the thing is that they mix with wolves. So the coyotes in, in the east are actually an admixed group of coyotes from further west and wolves. So, I mean, even to call them a species would be, you know. Misnomer. Well, I mean, like, yeah, like, I mean, if they mix, they don't, you know, they're ecologically, they're their own thing for sure. I mean, but also they have so many different ecologies. This is why they're like, canids are a good model to talk about humans because like people say, oh, Neanderthals, like, well, which Neanderthal, you know, they Mm -hmm. probably lived in North Africa. They lived in England They survived for, you know, as we knew them for, you know, a hundred thousand years or longer, which ecology are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like. That's the same thing with coyotes. You have coyotes out west. You have coyotes. In, you have coyotes in New York City. You know what I mean? So, right. Depending on which ecology you want to talk about, yeah, no, they're they're interesting critters for sure. So, species to you, I know it's kind of a hard ask, but and and guys, for everyone listening here, like what we were going to talk about today was human evolution and, and paleoanthropology, but this applies to any zoological creature. Like, what would you define as species? And I know that's, that's a loaded question. Tough. That's tough. I could tell you what a species isn't probably Let's a little bit more easily. So a species isn't something that somebody invents so they can get tenure. <laughs> the first way of talking about it. So like taking a step back from that, like I understand 
and appreciate the value of calling something a species for conservation reasons. If you can call a local population of orangutan its own species, in order to save that local population of orangutans, I will be the first person to call it species with you. Whether or not it meets a genetic definition of species is a different story. So there's different sorts of species definitions from an ecological species to a biological species, whatever. But I think if you ask 20 biologists how to define species, you'll get 20 different answers. And for probably equally good reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. well, as it applies to humans, human fossils specifically, you know, people will describe a new species in the genus Homo, right? And they'll say, oh, this species of Homo, you know, XYZ falls in between Homo XYZ minus one and XYZ plus one. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, first of all, one, how do you know that? Second of all, the radiometric dating isn't that high enough resolution. You don't have a good age range for it. Also can't tell me if this is a male or a female or a juvenile. Like a lot of the times the way that, especially in the past, people called species was it was basically following what we do with dinosaurs. It's like basically every fossil gets a species name, you know what I mean? Sure. Which isn't to say that there aren't species of humans. Like if somebody were to say to me that like Homo naledi was a species, I'd say that's okay. Yeah, if you want to call it a species, you can call it a species. But if somebody were to say that Homo habilis, Homo ergaster, Homo rudolfensis, Homo erectus were four different species of human I'd be like, uh, I don't really know if I buy that. You know what I mean? You have, you have a, a huge spectrum of variation of humans that we can call homo, and especially if they're living around the same period of time and in the same places, you have to prove that they were not able to breed with one another. <laughs> I don't think you can yeah. really do that. You know what I mean? You could probably say that like the, the maybe like the Paranthropus lineage was distinct from the stuff that turned into us like that's probably a fair argument but i wouldn't say that they were you know that they couldn't interbreed with any other human population and that's like a very strict biological species definition a lot of this would is you, really just go ahead oh sorry w- would you agree with the idea then that species is like any organism that can interbreed and have viable offspring well you know because then coming at it as a geneticist like there are things that i would call species that produce five offspring, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I don't know. It, 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 and it's like, it's really difficult. So I think you need to just have, especially when it comes to ancient humans, the null hypothesis is that groups are the same and you have to prove that they're different. It takes fewer assumptions to say that they're the same and puts the onus on the actual science and makes you actually have to do the work to prove that species are different. And, you know, and also not everything needs to be, have a biological species definition. I think we we put a lot of, emphasis on on nomenclature and i understand the importance of that and i value that but i also think at the same time we really split hairs a lot like like somebody tried telling me that the reason why neanderthals and us were the different species was because we have chins and like come on that's really what you're going to reduce the argument to is that we have chins really like, come on, man. Like, I cannot buy that. Like, that that one phenotype is the one. Like, come on. Also, Neanderthals had chins. <laughs> you know what I mean? They weren't the crimson chin, but they had chins. Sure. Shout out Fairly Odd Parents. Yeah, and I, I see those differentiations all the time. It's like they had they were shorter and stockier or versus, like, you know, they hunted with thrusting spears and things like that versus atlatls. But that, to me, boils down to, I mean, obviously, the, the phenotypical stuff is... 
I, what I'm trying to say is it's a cultural difference to me usually like through stone tools more so than it is yeah, a, a genetic yeah. difference. So, yeah, I mean, especially I because they all mixed, they all mixed with us in that, you know what I mean? They mixed with what we would call Denisovans, even though the Denisovans probably never called themselves Denisovans. Neanderthals never called themselves Neanderthals. You know what I mean? These people were more concerned with just surviving the winter than anything else, right? They didn't care right. about populational labels and stuff. But yeah, no, I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, I would not say that Neanderthals went extinct. They changed, right? But Neanderthalism is probably more of a starting to think it, it be, like, yeah, when you say Neanderthal, everybody knows what you mean. Right. That's also a whole different different sets of assumptions but like that lifestyle changed evolved as these groups were absorbed by other groups migrating in and out of africa and the near east and things like that so yeah i mean like then you could say they went extinct in the same way that that mycenaean greeks (laughs) went extinct or the vikings went extinct you know like the lifestyle went extinct the gene pool changed yeah it was still i mean we still descend from then but you know they didn't didn't disappear like that you know what i mean Huh. Long story short is humans are super admixed in the past and in the present. And it's really difficult to say without having boots on the ground of a time machine, what population dynamics were like. And that's why paleogenomics exists. So we're trying to reconstruct that stuff. But yeah, that's that. What is paleogenomics, by the way? Genomics of the past. So, okay. So yeah, I'm sorry. it's not just humans either. So like yeah, paleogenomics can be woolly rhino, Neanderthal, LeBron, yeah, you know, it could be anything. Sure. What's the difference between genomics and genetics? Genetics is like when I, when I think of genetics as a field, I'm specifically speaking about the study of genes. Right. Okay. That can be whatever you want. Genomics is the study of the structure, the the function, the mapping of genomes, how the genomes evolve, and all that other stuff. So they you know they overlap obviously, but you know when you talk about genomics, you're talking about the genome. Mm-hmm. When you talk about genetics, you're talking about genes, which is you know people use them interchangeably. I I, don't, I use them all the time, but I don't mean the same thing. But yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So I think that's a good spot to end the first segment, and then we'll pick back up afterwards. I got a few questions about what you're doing. Okay. Welcome back to episode 148 of the Life Runs Podcast. I'm here with my friend Vincent Batista. We're talking paleogenomics, paleogenetics. We just discussed what genomics and genetics are. I don't think I got to ask you last segment, but what what is it you're currently doing for for work? The last time we spoke, I was at Massachusetts General Hospital, and that's I was right. in the Center for Translational epidemiology, which was in GI. And I since finished just kind of like a non, a non-traditional postdoc. And I finished that and got a job in industry where I do translational epidemiology for a company called Bristol Myers, which is a pharmaceutical company. Okay. So yeah. we're allowed to call that big pharma. You can call it whatever you want. Yeah. It's a very, <laughs> very small, very, very small group. And we do a lot of really cool stuff. I personally need to do some cool things. So, yeah. How do you feel doing that, having gone through three degrees of anthropology and not teaching like anthropology? I do anthropology every day. Yeah, I get to do a. Pl- I get to use my degree in my training every single day, every single day. And you're not doing musical chairs of training no. students and giving degrees no. and stuff. I still get to mentor young scientists. I get to mentor people from a bunch of different backgrounds from mm-hmm. all over the world. I get to work with people from all over the world and I get to use my training as an anthropologist. I also want to say like, you know, I was an archaeologist as an undergrad, but then I got a bioanthro degree from a four field school. And that meant that I had to take everything from a genetics course to an osteology course to, which I did both of those for my dissertation. 
to doing computational methods to taking medical anthropology. And I use that stuff all the time. I even use linguistics all the time, linguistic anthropology all the time, like talking yeah. about power dynamics, talking about the language of consent, talking about these things. I use that all the time. And I don't know many, I don't have a whole lot of colleagues that are at this stage in their career where they get to do that all like every day. And I do it literally every day. That is so cool, man. Yeah. And when you say consent, you mean like for like research purposes, genetics? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, you know, we have, we might, for example, on a given day, be speaking with stakeholders about, you know, like what, um, I can't really go into too much detail because a lot of it's proprietary. Sure. But like, say we were hypothetically getting a project off the ground with a community, you know, making sure that the research questions that are directly relevant to their specific health outcomes are being met and that they're informed and knowing that this is done in a sustainable way. And like, you know, like I haven't been there that long, but people that I work with, there's actually like several people who have anthropology background in my department. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Who are bioinformaticians. Yeah. So yeah. What's your day to day look like there? Like as say, like for someone who's anthropologically interested, I do a lot of writing computer programs. Huh? So my dissertation, my PhD research was on, it was computational biology. I mean, I did genetics and I did physiology and anatomy. And so I was pretty light on the physiology stuff because I was looking at genes implicated in known physiological processes. So I didn't do a lot of hands-on physiology stuff. But in my postdoc training, I did a lot of proteomics. So for my day-to-day, I might do some proteomics stuff, some population genetic stuff, which is what I'm really familiar with, to writing machine learning programs to help refine stuff or, you know, doing code reviews, things like that. I do a lot of writing also like writing up white papers for new disease areas that we might be interested in, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. How do you feel about machine learning and AI going into the future? If you don't mind me asking. I do machine learning all the time and it's a really powerful tool. The problem with powerful tools in science is that people think they will save the world. And people who do machine learning and AI know that it's an important tool, but also know the limitations. But people who want to fund a lot of the research, I'm not saying my company, but I'm saying like NSF things that I've seen, yeah, yeah. NIH things that I've seen, are promising you the moon and stars when you could get to the moon and stars with conventional statistics. <laughs> like you could do things with, from your stat 101, stat 201 classes. You mm-hmm. don't need machine learning. So that's one thing. On the other hand, machine learning is going to really help us to be able to identify possibly new therapies. It could help us to learn things from orphan drugs, like drugs that were developed but never brought to market, for example. Mm-hmm. It's going to help us identify new things from diagnostic imaging. These are all things that are being published right now in high-impact journals that like, you know, people are using this to make a positive influence on human health. And I think I suffer from being an optimist, but this could... You know, AI could be something that leads us to a four-day work week, you know, or a three-day yeah. work week. You know, if we if we get our stuff together, you know, we could spend more time, you know, doing the other important things in our day-to-day. But you know, again, I'm a futurist, optimist person, so but I got to reel that. No, in. no, you're good. It's nice to dream. Yeah, yeah, I, I see it every day, and I I want to get back to genetics here in a minute, but. Like my friend's an engineer. He loves AI because it can like, 
he can type in stuff and he'll let the, the program run for like 24 hours and he'll have this like really cool computer yeah. thing that he designed or like a product he designed uh, and it comes out looking super cool. But then there's also the, like I would love to use artwork for AI, but like, or AI for artwork, but I don't want to plagiarize people's yeah, art that it's taking from and things like that, which is a, a bummer. That's a huge problem. A big thing too is like, any kid now can use chat GPT and type in like, make me a YouTube video about the history of dogs. And like I did it and it took some straight up quotes from my Instagram, um, some of Angela's work and just like put it right there and then they can make it, which is great. I want kids to be able to be creative, but like, it's just scary to me that you can just do that. But it's also a cool tool, like you said. So I'm glad that it wasn't a big thing when I was teaching. All the cheating and tests and classes. Also like, I I think, (laughs) But also, like in anthropology, at least what I was teaching, there was so much in class stuff, like lab practicals and stuff that you can't chat GBT your way out of. Right. The other thing is like having students be like write personal reflections, things like that in person. You can't really chat GBT that either, right? So, like having introspection, no. like that sort of stuff is really important. And I think, you know, it's definitely a, a windfall in what we do, but I think, um, you know, we'll find a way. We'll find a way. AI yeah. is cool, though. AI is super cool. Like, I think we're going to be able to use AI to build, like, better, safer automobiles and, you know, things like that. So that'll be sweet. I'm glad you're optimistic about it. I see a lot of people who aren't. But I also think it's it's got more positive than negative, I think, currently. Yeah. Anyway, anyway getting back to genetics, that I, I would love to chat to you about that forever. But in, in genetics, I understand... Well, actually, I think we might have mentioned this on our last episode. I got in contact with you because you reached out to me about a Neanderthal post that I had. Yeah. And you had said something to me on there that like, hey, you're not entirely accurate about this. And instead of like getting pissed, I was like, oh, wait, this guy's right. Who are you? And then I realized <laughs> you were my teacher's teacher's student. Yeah. Uh, and I was we're like, kin, oh, dude. Okay. We're kin. <laughs> we, we are kin. So like I immediately listened to you more. So that being said, we have the same background of information on out of Africa versus multi-regional, but would you be able to explain what out of Africa is? In yeah. Like, so, terms? so, so out of Africa and multi-regionalism are two contrasting models of human origins. So out of Africa says modern humans, the way we are today appeared in Africa and we replaced populations that were outside of Africa. Right. So multi-regionalism, if we want to contrast the two says that humans the earliest humans on record, earliest hominids on record, appear in Africa. There were primates outside of Africa, but the first things that we know were things that led to us appear in Africa, and they disperse outside of Africa. And even within and without Africa, you have core and peripheral populations. You have population centers and population edges. And these populations are connected through migration and gene flow between them. And something that's advantageous in one place will become higher and higher in frequency until fixation in that specific region. And if it's even beneficial to other regions, it'll, because of migration, spread throughout the planet, right? And Mm -hmm. essentially, it says that populations like Neanderthals or the hominids that you find in East Asia, they didn't go extinct, extinct in the way that, you know, we replaced them. But in actuality, we mix with them. And the evidence for that is that traits that we see in ancient human populations in specific parts of the world can be found in their descendants. 
who live in those parts of the world today. Now, the support for the out of Africa is that if you look at mitochondrial DNA and YSTR, so like the Y chromosomal DNA, these things coalesce in Africa. And none of the ancient DNA that we've gotten from Neanderthals or other humans that are, you know, the Nisibans, whatever you want to call them. Sure. None of those uniparentally inherited markers from antiquity are found in humans today. Right? So, like, both arguments have their merits. But I come from an academic tradition that tends towards this multi-regional braided stream idea of human evolution. And, And the evidence of that, since we started sequencing Neanderthal genomes, and not just their mitochondrial DNA, is that we find pretty alarming amount of Neanderthal and Denisovan ancestry in living human populations. And as was predicted by this multi-regional model, traits that were advantageous to certain places in the world in antiquity, where there was a geographic center of humans, let's say Denisovans, can be found in descendant populations today. For example, genes that allow people who live in high-altitude regions to survive at high altitude in the Himalayas, those haplotypes can be actually traced back to Denisovans who lived in those same areas. So we see other things like uh, certain Neanderthal-related traits that we believe contribute to body proportionality and things like that. So essentially, the big difference between the two, which these competing camps in the back in, in, uh, in the past thought was like either all humans were replaced or all humans mixed, and reality is somewhere in between the two of those. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there is this argument about multi-regionalism that says that it's this like model of actually the candelabra, which was a model put forward by guys like Carlton Kuhn. I believe it was Carlton Kuhn. Basically said that you have distinct human species and these species never mixed. And people from East Asia are the same species as people from East Asia from a million years ago. People from Africa are the same as people from Africa a million years ago. People from Europe are the same as people from Europe a million years ago, and they don't mix. And that's often what people think of because they are given this incorrect model of multi-regionalism, when in reality, the underlying assumption of multi-regionalism, the thing that makes the model work is that humans mix, and they mix in the past similar to how they mix today. And I believe the second that we found any Neanderthal DNA in living populations today, it showed that multi-regionalism has merit, and it's true. I mean, we see genes from Neanderthals in North African populations that isn't from, like, post-Bronze Age population expansion into North Africa from people from Eurasia. Like, there were probably Neanderthals in the Middle East and North Africa. You know, there were Neanderthals in in the Levant. They were, Mm -hmm. you know, they probably moved around. They probably, why would they stop? (laughs) Yeah, they were in Spain too. Why would they stop when they got to, you know, Mount Sinai? You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Too nice over here. Yeah. Damn. Okay. So you think it's a, it's a mix of the two then like out of Africa and I guess you can't have one without the other. I, I, I am, I adhere to the braided stream multi-regional idea insofar as humans mix, they have always mixed and they will always continue to mix Mm -hmm. out of Africa happened. It's a matter of if you think it happened 50,000 years ago or 2 million years ago. Whoa. Right. So we have Dimanisi, right? Dimanisi is in Georgia. 
Um, oh, it's a, it's right. an archaeological site that has five individuals that are attributed to Homo erectus. Right. And these, I think it's 1.75 million years, something like that. It's pretty old. It's, over, it's older than 1.6 million years old. I don't remember the exact date. But long story short, th- these are five individuals. You have males and females. You have younger folks and older folks. And there is so much variation in this one population from this one cave site that it almost completely encompasses the variation that you see within Homo in Africa at that exact same period of time. Yeah. Right? So it's like as soon as they show up in Africa – they're in Europe and Asia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they 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 show up and then they're all over the place. Homo erectus. Right? Yeah, if that's what you yeah. want to call them. Yeah. You know, they're they show up and then they disperse, right? Born to run thing, right? <laughs> like they're like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> it's just it's like Forrest Gump, you know. I just kept <laughs> like, running. Just kept running. <laughs> All right, uh, let's uh, let's cut that there, and then in the next segment, I want to ask you more about that. And just right. for the record, we're talking about Georgia, Hasbullah, Asia. We're not talking about Georgia, Tennessee, the Florida. No, Georgia, America. That's the word. There we go. All right, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to episode 148 of the Life Nerds podcast. Uh, I just want to clear one thing up. Last segment, I mentioned uh, Hasbullah is from Georgia. Hasbullah is actually from Dagestan, which is not Georgia. Very different former satellite states of the Soviet Union. Anyway, we're talking uh, with Vincent about, uh, well, I, I want to get into Homo erectus. Now, that area you're talking about in Georgia, I me think about this, but I, I, I often tell people that humans are, we're just mutant Homo erectus. Like once we reached Homo erectus and made actually in hand axes and, and that tool industry, we've kind of just interbred with other variants of humans and we are what we are today. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, it's um, that's a, basically. I mean, so that site in Georgia, Diminisi, it's interesting because when the first archaeological finds, well, the first human remains were found there, there was I think four individuals, and they tried to call it Homo georgicus. They wanted mm-hmm. it to be its own species, uh, and then a couple of years later, they found a fifth individual, and that fifth individual was interesting because it, it, the variation that you have in these five individuals almost completely encompasses all the variation you see for contemporaneous members of the genus Homo uh, in Africa. And it's about 1.8 million years old, uh, this site. So to me, to say that we are all different versions of uh, Homo erectus is, is fine. I mean, you know, I don't know if you would take you know, a 2 million year old homo erectus and drop him off in New York city today. Some people would be like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Something, yeah. This, this guy looks a little bit different, right. Or this, or this person looks a little bit different. Like that could be the case, but for, especially for later homo erectus, you know, they're really not that different from us. I mean, the, I don't think it was a case that there was like a speciation event. I don't think there was ever a clean break mm-hmm. in, in the human lineage from the last australopiths to, the earliest members of the genus Homo up into us. It's a remember, it's a, a long and slow process. Evolution is, and some people are in favor of things of like you know a model where there's cladogenesis, where you have this branch that goes off and makes their own thing. It doesn't really seem to have been the case for us. Now there are some unique populations of human, like Naledi. Mm-hmm. Now, Letty looks pretty different. It it doesn't look like us necessarily. It doesn't look like Homo erectus necessarily either. It's its own population 
And there's a remarkable amount of similarity between the individuals there. And what's weird is that they're only known from like, you know, a small geographical area. Yeah. A cave site, right? So now if you compare Naledi, which is more recent, with Dimanisi, like, again, the variation in Dimanisi is incredible. You have males and females, you have younger folks, you have older folks, you have people that are healthy, you have folks with a lot of bone resorption and their teeth are missing from their mandible. You have one individual, a male, who is the, has the biggest skull out of all of them, and he has the smallest brain, uh, the smallest endocranial volume out of all of them. So, you know, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, the, all human populations on the planet today, even though we have regional variation in the amount of ancestry derived from archaic human populations like Neanderthals, Denisovans, etc., the first Homo erectus that moved to East Asia met some really unique evolutionary selective pressures. The same with the first Homo erectus that went to Northwest Africa or ones that went to Iberia, right? Each one of these places would have had their own sets of pressures ranging from UV radiation to possibly high altitude to maybe even heat, maybe even hotter places than what they were like living in sort of a tropical uh, environment, maybe in East Africa or South Africa, wherever you want to talk about, but yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. There's no clear break, no line in the sand that separates us from really any of our ancestors because that's not really how evolution works. Sure. Why do you think people are so hell-bent on like getting a, a line in the sand or like, you know, wanting a clear yeah, like, a missing link? Yeah. Right, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah you know, it's because it's we humans are weird because we like really simple explanations. Mm-hmm. And for some, evolution is a simple explanation right? Like things that are fit for an environment are going to have a greater likelihood of being passed on to subsequent generations. We, the lay public, on the other hand, this is like, you know, this is everybody. This isn't just people who are interested in science or not, whatever. Mm-hmm. We latch onto certain ideas from the past. And sometimes it takes a long time to unlearn these things. So you see like, you know, the ascent of man or something like that, the cartoon of the, the chimp and then an early human and then some right. later human and then us. We have this idea that there's a missing link, but every time you find a missing link and you stick it into that lineage, a new gap opens up on either end. So there's something that will come before it and something that will come after it. And you, if you populate all those gaps with all the variation of humans, it's a big bushy tree with vines interconnecting them. And it's a really tangled bank as Darwin called it. And if you follow the the braided stream analogy of human evolution, it says that, you know, our genes that were, we have parts of our genome that evolved in places that are not where we live today, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. there are, there are parts of our genome that evolved to selective pressures in East Africa. There are parts of our genome that evolved in maybe in the Near East or, you know, but as far as like a missing link goes, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a catch-all term because we expect there to be one thing that we can point to that can answer all our questions and that's never going to be the case. Yeah. What's the braided stream? Remember that in human origins. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's multi-regionalism. It's um, basically that, I don't know who came up with the term braided stream. I think maybe Hawks may have. But essentially, it's that just like a a glacial stream that has these little rivulets that break off and reconnect. and, Mm -hmm. And when they diverge, some of these divergent streams may disappear and evaporate, but other ones could pick up more steam and collect more meltwater and they become bigger and they become a main stem of a stream. You will have this process of divergence and reticulation. And that seems to be the case for human evolution. 
for example, we have a population movement out of Africa into the Near East, and that population separated into Western Neanderthals, then Eastern Neanderthals, and Denisovans. And these different populations traded genes with each other. And you have things like local lineage loss, like there was a population turnover in, in Neanderthals that happened at one point in time where you have Neanderthals from the East basically moving back into Western Europe. You know, Western Europe is where genes go to die. It's a cul-de-sac. And when you have things like glacial events happening, populations get stuck. You know, the gene pool gets smaller. Populations become more inbred. And that's happened a billion zillion times in human evolution. Mm-hmm. But but then, you know, if these populations survive, new populations will move in and mix with them and bring with them advantageous genetic variants. And we see that with early humans that look like us who go to Europe, they mix with Neanderthals and, and Denisovans. We see the same thing when they go into to Central Eurasia, probably East Asia, Southeast Asia. It happens every time humans in the past moved somewhere, they mixed with whoever was there. And that kind of defies this model of a single dispersal with complete population replacement. It didn't happen like that. Populations mixed and it seems like they always mix. It seems to be the rule more than anything else. Every ancient genome that we get has some level of admixture in it with archaic humans with with very few exceptions. Is it possible that some of those like gene sequences that are more archaic are just still in the DNA or is it pretty evident that it's it's admixture? You can tell that there's admixture, yeah. So even though ancient DNA can be very degraded, because of this population, basically bifurcation that you get, you have these things evolving on their own and they evolve kind of unique ancestry informative markers, right? So mutations that are unique to a place and a time that are then passed down to to offspring. There's this, I guess you can call it a mathematical modeling process using these admixture algorithms where you can detect amounts of these ancestry components being crossed into populations. There's also a really simple test called ABBA-BABA, where it's basically you have... ABBA-BABA. Yeah, A-B-B-A-B-A-B-A. It's it's also called the D-statistic. But basically, it's um, you have a test for deviation from like a very strict bifurcation event or a splitting event in evolutionary time. And long story short... If you have an excess of these mutation, these mutations that are found in this, you know, archaic human population in inside your non-archaic population, chances are they were crossed in. So, you know, that's kind of oversimplification of it, but it's, you know, it's an interesting test. So Neanderthals, just like kind of, as you put it, like they were existing populations in Eurasia. How did and they probably North Africa and probably North, North Africa, Africa too. too. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, they're a human group and the, these humans left. There was a population dispersal from Africa sometime after two million years ago. We find the earliest evidence of this at Demon EC. And there's some archaeological sites in China that are around the same age. So it looks like as soon as they got out of Africa, they probably went back into Africa, probably went into maybe what is today, the, you know, Saudi Arabia, that area probably went into to India and East Asia, probably went all over the place. But we do find archaeological signatures in Georgia. We find early human remains in um, Iberia over a million years ago. So, you know, they move into these places and they put down roots and then they evolve to local selective pressures. And so, like, we have the Atapuerca hominids who are over a million years old. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the earliest evidence of a human there, like, 
osteologically is a tooth. Yeah, I think the oldest individual there is a tooth at SEMA. I'm not 100% sure. You have to fact check that. But, you know, we have ancient DNA from those individuals too. And we see that, like, I think their mitochondrial genome is more closely related to Denisovans than Hmm. it is to the Neanderthals who lived in Spain after them. But I think their Y lineage is more closely related to the Neanderthals. That might be backwards. It's been, you know, six or seven years, maybe longer than that (laughs) since I last read these papers. But yeah, no, it's interesting. But what you do see is that you have the formations of basically a population structure of these Western hominids and these Eastern hominids and probably multiple Eastern hominids. The ones that are in Southeast Asia might look a little bit different, but realistically like East Asia in China was probably a population center like the Jukudi uh, and Jokochen, I don't know what the proper pronunciation is. Like you have a yeah. whole lot of individuals living there. And like the last ones of them, they're called like the late Homo erectus. And they could have been around, you know, less than a hundred thousand years ago, but you know, they were mixing with humans that are moving right. there all the time. They're constantly, constantly mixing. So and that's what they found fire too, right? Like, over yeah, they, yeah. I, mean, we were, yeah. I think we were using fire at least by a million years ago be honest with you. Yeah, I I would agree with that statement too. I don't know how we could, like as a person who studied cold climate adaptation, I don't really know how we could have moved into all these places without fire. Exactly. Like even at night in the Middle East, it's still cold. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah, The the desert is cold, man. Colder. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that's fascinating too. And uh, fire too is more, that's something I always looked at as a marker of like, okay, a million years ago, fire. It's like a, education or uh, an intellectual thing but it's not it's literally just a technology much like lavoa technology or actually yeah. technology yeah it might take a little more fine motor skill to make a bow drill but like yeah, you know I mean, it's assuming they were making bow drills <laughs> you know what i mean right. yeah just hitting flint together or doing other things. who knows drill. like even if they even if they found Lighting. naturally occurring yeah i mean like but managing that resource and protecting that resource as fire you know what i mean like yeah but I mean, even in Australia, there's possibly evidence of, of burning, intentionally managing the landscape with fire, like as soon as Abger- Aboriginal Australian ancestors get there. There's some evidence really? for that. So yeah. So I mean, like even, you know, at 50,000 years ago, people are using fire in the way that we use fire today. So hmm. yeah. yeah. And especially to harness it from, let's say like a bolt of lightning or something natural, like that requires a lot of oral... Right. And cultural transmission of like, hey, this thing's going to strike at this point when the skies get all black. We need to run to it and get that. I feel like that that's just as much intelligence to me. Yeah, let alone uh, like overcoming our biology to be afraid of fire. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess that's a good point too. That's like probably understanding. Great yeah, like, I don't know, like dogs. You know, like wolves. I mean, my dog does not like fire, but some dogs are cool with it. Mine loves fire. <laughs> my dog stays about 10 feet away and stares. He also might just overheat because his coat is so thick. Mm. No, mine tries to eat the embers that fly out. Oh, my God, um, no. He's got a scar on his nose from it. <laughs> no shit. Wow. But, yeah. Why do you think people are so... I mean, I asked you why they're hell-bent on getting a missing link, but why are we so intent on classifying each other into these different little groups and species? That's that's what we do, man. And it's unfortunate, but, like, we need to – because the world is complex, we need to – we have this, like, need to categorize it and organize it in a way that we can understand. And also we come from an academic tradition and probably even a theological tradition in the West that says that you need to do this. Like, you have this hierarchy, Mm -hmm. right? And – 
I don't really know if that needs to be the case. Like as a scientist, like I'm interested in cladistics and phylogenetics, right? Like sure. that's what we do. But at some point, we're going to have to have a serious rehaul of the way that we, the, th- the things that we call, like I don't think Ergaster, Rudolf Fensis, you know, all these other, th- all these other early members of Homo, I don't actually think they're all their own species mm-hmm. at all. You know what I mean? Um, Lumper. Yeah, sometimes conditionally a lumper a, a lot of the times i lump but then there's some you know groups of hominids where i'm like yeah dude this is i can't Split. like i really it's really tough to lump this but but at the same time it's like you know there's good reasons to to split like if it means that we can protect an endangered species and split away you know what i mean yeah uh, you know there's like ecological species concept biological species concepts i'm I'm a big fan of the conservation species concept. It's like we conserve it, then we're going to split it. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's about all I got for this time. I'd love to have you on again and talk more about this stuff. Cause it's just endlessly fascinating. Connor and Carlton couldn't make it, but I know they have their own questions about all this stuff too. And you're a guy for that. So the guy, well, uh, if uh, anyone in the audience, if you has any questions regarding human evolution, shoot us a, uh, I'll make a post about this. You can leave a comment or just shoot us a message. See if we can get it answered. But uh, Vincent, I appreciate you coming back on, man. Don't mention it, buddy. If you've just listened to episode 148 of Life News Podcast, uh, you can rate and review the podcast on Apple or Spotify, and then uh, rate and review would be great. If you give us a review and send a screenshot of it to the podcast, Carlton will send you a sticker. And Connor's not here, so I don't have a witty joke today, but uh, we'll get back to you next week. All right, see ya. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.